Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, Eliana Gray, is an award-winning writer and musician living mostly in Otipoti, uh, Aotearoa. They're a songwriter and member of the band Jagger's X-Lines and Certainty and self-published two illustrated poetry books, won the University of Otago Poetry Competition and competed as a finalist in the National Poetry Slam. Their work's been published in many, many places, including most recently the collection we're talking about today, Eager to Break. Eliana, welcome. Hi, Maggie. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a joy to have you on the show today. Um, look, I've, I've been a little obsessed lately with um, first poems in books. <laughs> I've been sort of um, looking at why people choose first poems, and I, I'd love it if you could just open the show with the first poem in your book, How I Learned to Speak. I would love to. Here we go. How I Learned to Speak. We only need the word until we know how to say it. Roll it around in our mouths until it's coated. Slicked its way through the blood-brain barrier like meningitis. Swell through our thoughts, leaving marks, scattered shells broken into sand. Which works its way into the soft, squiggly folds of tissue imagined pink. Grit sharp edges not pointed enough to cut, rough enough to irritate, cause an inflammation. Which is a process of surrounding. Softening the particle until it breaks. Expelled from the body unrecognizable. All these piles around me, lives I've left discarded, a museum of irritation, a product of understanding. So it seems to me that um, in this poem, one of the key themes in the book is, is kind of set up, which is this notion of finding a new language or a way to speak out of trauma a way to speak as a way of getting out of trauma as well, um, and a way to speak after trauma, not necessarily about trauma. Um, could you talk to me a little bit about that and, and how you went about choosing this as the first poem in the book too? I will. Well, you basically, I mean, you've hit the nail incredibly on the head in terms of uh, getting the meaning of it. And I'd also just like to say that I personally too am also obsessed with first and last poems. And it was one of my probably favorite parts of the process was of making this book was choosing the order that the poems would go in. Um, and I think it's, it's something that I always read into in poetry collections as well. Uh, and something that I think can be imbued with a lot of meaning. So I guess for me with this book, I really wanted to open on something that was like a thetical statement, um, which, you know, as you said, is about learning to speak. And for me, that's kind of what this book is. And I wanted this poem. I didn't intentionally write this poem to be the start of the book. I didn't intentionally write any of the poems to be in this book. Um, I just wrote all the poems and then they ended up being in a book that is very cohesive, uh, kind of by accident. But when I was putting the book in order, I knew that this poem is essentially the poem of the book. You know, it could be like the title poem and it sort of tells a story of what the book is trying to do and what the book is. So for me, like the book, this is sort of me narrating what I'm doing in the book. Um, and the whole, you know, so the book is itself the museum of irritation, but also the product of understanding. And it's, you know, 
each poem is essentially this thing that has been expelled from my body covered in my pus. <laughs> you know, it's kind of unrecognizable from what first went in, but it's still a product of that. And a lot of people think it's gross. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. That's what kind of another thing that I like about really sort of almost mm, to some people grotesque uh, bodily references. And I really like referencing the body because of that kind of imagery and because of the sort of repulsion that can sometimes be slipped into a poem through referencing the body. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah, I guess that's kind of what that poem means to me. It's just really about how I feel about poetry and how, yeah, poetry is a difficult but good way to grasp with exploring topics that are incredibly difficult to talk about. And I think this is something that's so beautiful about the mutability and elasticity of poetry uh, and meaning and condensed meaning and how you can get all of those into a poem. Yeah, yeah. because it's you can talk about things through poetry that you can't talk about otherwise. You know, I was able to talk about my trauma through poems so many years before I was able to tell people that I was a survivor or, you know, talk about really anything that had happened to me. Yeah. I, I mean, just getting back to the whole notion of breakage, um, which comes out in the title. I mean, this idea of, of again, I, you know, platitudes don't really work when you're talking about <laughs> things that are, you know, intense. Um, and, uh, and I guess the poetry allows for this contradiction, this complexity, and, and for rhythmic ways, for inchoate ways, you know, for dreamlike ways of exploring things that don't necessarily have to resolve. Yeah, and I think that that's something that's so beautiful about poetry and something that makes poetry a really good vehicle for talking about things like trauma. And especially, the f I mean, I think that there's really a reason that I was drawn to poetry as a way of processing while I was in, you know, the very, like a very intense stage of my healing journey. And I think that's a kind of an important context of the book. Like, I don't think that the book needs to be read through a trauma, uh, through a trauma lens or, you know, that it needs to be known that it is explicitly about kind of, you know, experiences of sexual abuse. But I do think that, you know, the, what poetry allows us to do and what poetry allows us to talk about through the form, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that I ended up writing a bunch of poems about trauma. Yeah. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So um, can we talk about eggs? <laughs> so I, I just wanted eggs. to say that we don't actually have to talk about eggs. Um, <laughs> no, I would, I would love to talk about eggs. <laughs> and, uh, and I know you've talked about the symbolism of the yolk. And um, I just was wondering whether eggs have become a kind of logo for you now. Are you the egg poet? <laughs> I mean, kind of, yeah. And to be honest, I'm really into it because uh, the aesthetic is pleasing. Love me some creamy eggshell colors and a nice golden yellow. Uh, so that's a vibe. But what I think is the most funny is that I had ended up using one. I was a vegan for a really long time and I only recently started eating eggs again and eggs actually make me feel used to make me feel violently ill. Um, and because of the fact that eggs made me feel like vomiting, uh, when I was doing a photo shoot for my band, for one of my bands, um, 
I was like, okay, I want to, I like doing really gross stuff for art. Um, and I was like, okay, let's do a photo shoot with eggs and baked beans because they both make me feel like vomiting, you know? Uh, and so we did a photo shoot where we covered our body in like fried eggs and I made a top out of baked beans and it was really weird. Uh, and that was sort of about a year before the book came out or six months or something. And then without even thinking about it, I sort of chose the egg imagery for the book because Eager to Break is a title that had been rolling around in my mind for a really long time and, and just sort of like a concept in general. And yeah, then when I looked back, I realized that I had all these photos already of me, you know, with eggs all over my body and like dressed up like an egg. And I think it's kind of funny how you always sort of end up unintentionally circling back to the images and the concepts that make the most sense to you, whether you know it or not. Yeah. Also, though, I think um, I, I was listening to a podcast in my car this morning, and um, it was actually an interview with George Saunders at the uh, Sydney Writers Festival. And one of the things that Saunders said was, you know, li literature, in contrast to, I guess, his work, literature sits up straight. And uh, And I thought... You know, it's almost as if sitting up straight is is restrictive. And so breaking that with funny things like eggs or, you know, dealing with things like pain, but with, with lighthearted imagery or, you know, with, with a laugh and laughter, it, it, it almost is subversive. I mean, powerful, powerful, subversive, powerful and subversive at the same time. Oh, I agree completely. And I think also... I mean, I think there's a couple things that are very important or that I find probably a better word is that I find useful about using humor and lightheartedness when talking about things that, you know, traditionally aren't like lighthearted. Uh, I think it's important. I think it'll, it makes it more accessible for people. Um, and I know that this is some feedback that I've had personally in my life. Like I there's people in my life who are close to me who won't read some of my poems because they're too painful and because they know sort of, you know, my, me and my life and what they're about, that the experience of engaging with that is too painful for them, which I, you know, obviously totally respect and understand. No one needs to read my poetry. Like it's, that's totally fine. But I think that something that's good about injecting humor into these situations, uh, from the standpoint, from like an audience standpoint is that it makes it easier to engage with topics that we've been told our entire life are secretive and dangerous and that we shouldn't talk about and are sort of shrouded in shame, which sexual violence and mental health both, you know, fall under that category. And so I think making it accessible from an audience perspective is important and like kind of a cool thing that happens as a result of that, both I think on the page and then also in performance, it's always such a joy. It's just fun reading funny poetry, you know? And I think that at, for myself as someone who considers themselves a performance poet and someone who like genuinely loves performing poetry, I, you know, I, it's a, it's a thrill when the audience laughs and especially when you're making hyperpersonal poetry you know, I'm laughing at myself all the time and it's nice to let other people in on that too and kind of show that I think especially because I felt so seriously about 
all of these things, especially, you know, all the abuse and stuff for so long in my life, because there was a very long period of me, you know, being in denial about it, not knowing, you know, not having the language to describe my experiences. Um, and so then it was this really serious secret. And then when I kind of sort of like stopped it being a secret, it was like still this really serious thing that was like affecting my life horribly. So uh, from a personal perspective, there's also a lot of power to be reclaimed from engaging with these topics with humor and lightheartedness because, you know, it's my life. I've got to live it. And so, hell yeah, if I can find this really messed up stuff that has happened to me, like quite deeply funny in a lot of ways and use these experiences to inject some joy into my life and other people's lives. I don't really think there's anything more beautiful than that that could come out of this, you know? Like, yeah. I could... I felt so terrible for so long about so many of these things that I think it's really important for me personally, like staying alive and being human to be able to be like, nah, this is funny. You know, like it's not, you know, sexual abuse isn't funny. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, and trauma isn't funny, but engaging with my life and having the agency to decide what I get to laugh at and how I get to engage with, you know, the messed up stuff happening in my head as a result of abuse. That's a really huge personal power and a really big reclamation. Absolutely. And, and being able to, to, as you say, you know, to write from the body, to talk about things that perhaps we shouldn't be ashamed of, but we are kind of taught in a societal way to be. You know, and just mm. saying, look, I can write about, you know, I can write about hair. I can write about periods. I can write about thighs. I can, you know, that th that in itself is a kind of reclamation and power and saying, you know, the body itself, the gross stuff is still, can still be, you know, powerful and beautiful and, and art. Definitely. And I think that that's something that I love, especially about the connotations of poetry as a form, like you know, I think traditionally it's viewed as this, it has sort of these connotations of, uh, you know, wistfulness and romance and all that kind of stuff. And I, that's why I love particularly bringing more kind of like grotesque or specifically vulnerable or, you know, very like corporeal references into my poetry, because I think that just juxtaposition is so fun to play with. Mm, absolutely. So on that topic, um, you've got a couple of poems that, um, and I didn't tell you about the second one, I'm afraid, <laughs> but you've got a couple of poems that um, that work together really beautifully, almost um, that kind of juxtaposition uh, between kind of open and closed, between um, internal and external, um, and also this reclamation. Um, so the, the poems I'm thinking of are... Um, people won't know what to do if you let them in and then it's partner <laughs> people won't know what to do if you don't let them in can, can I ask you wonderful I oh I'm sorry Maggie what were you saying yeah sorry can I just ask you to read them both in together I would love to all right oh and I'll actually just a fun little fact about this poem it started its life before the typesetting of the book as one poem. And the title of the poem was people won't know what to do if you let them in. People won't know what to do if you don't let them in. Uh, and then kind of once the book got formatted, it got separated out into two companion pieces. Okay. And here they are. People won't know what to do if you let them in. 
They will bang on your clear glass windows as you walk down the street crying, begging for just a little more. So used to having their pictures clearly defined, you trying so hard to be like a smudge on the x-ray, a shaky outline, edges soft with something wrong, like a call to the sky in the middle of the night that starts with, how may I help you today? People won't know what to do if you don't let them in. I learned silence from the first breath, how to hold myself underwater, blur my edges just a little bit more until I'm gone. A silent spot on my anatomy, a blockage of blood to the brain. So this, this whole notion of blurring the edges is another theme, I think, that comes through the book, um, opening and blurring. Um, the personal pronouns in the book shift as often they do in poetry. So, you know, you as the poet, you could be the, the poet, the self, the reader, an unnamed second person being referenced. Um, I, I get this, the sense in the book that throughout the poems in the book, you're very deliberately blurring those pronouns. So they aren't one or the other, but all of these things simultaneously that you and me and the reader and the poet and the unnamed person are kind of shifting in and out of a, a kind of connections. Is that you, we once again deeply understand the work. <laughs> You're completely true. That was very intentional. And I think that, I mean, I think something that's important about the context of this book is that I wasn't writing it as a collection. It became a collection after it was already written. So for me, the shifting of the pronouns and I think all the cohesions within the book itself and the fact that it is really a very cohesive collection about very cohesive themes mm -hmm. comes from the fact that I was writing it all during this period of a few years of my life when I was very deeply in therapy, had sort of just realized truly that I, you know, was a survivor of like lots of abuse and was kind of, you know, going through this very intense period of my life processing this stuff. And the shifting of the personal pronouns and the sort of ambiguity there really speaks to multiple different things within the kind of trauma experience and therapy processes, because something about, you know, it was a like the entire process of that I was going through when writing this book. And I, and I don't mean the process of writing the book itself. I mean, the emotional processes that I was going through, that got me to a place where I could write those poems or where I was writing those poems was really a sort of rebuilding of my own identity because I mean, and especially for me, the abuse happened. I mean, and I think for a lot of people that experience abuse, but you know, I'm going to talk personally because no person's experience is the same, but it happened at a time in my life. Um, I mean, multiple times in my life, but particularly when I was younger, really messed with my sense of identity and the sort of it meant that a lot of parts of my identity that I had built had been built on these kind of negative cognitions that had come from traumatic experiences. And so that really meant that through the process of therapy, I had to do a deep dive on essentially like my entire being, you know, and go back so far and unravel these negative cognitions, find out where they came from, try to like replace them with healthier ones. And then that sort of really threw me into a space where it was like, I was really defining myself 
by this trauma that had happened to me. And I think that's one of the reasons that I ended up writing so many poems about it because I was really like, had to grapple with the fact that this thing that these things that had happened to me that were so huge and so affecting that I had denied for so many years and really pretended that they hadn't happened. And then once I was ready to, you know, stop pretending that they hadn't happened and sort of really unpack them, so many other aspects of my life also went through an upheaval. And that is something that I didn't expect. And I think I didn't expect that because we never talk about what it's like to be a survivor. And, you know, we never talk about abuse and we never talk about trauma and what it's like to go through all that kind of stuff. So I was very surprised to find that now after this, I've, you know, I'm not a different person, but it felt like an experience of sort of rediscovering my identity and essentially having to sort of like remake it in some sense. So I think that that the shifting of the pronouns really speaks to that. And I mean, if we wanted to get into some, you know, like therapeutic modalities, if anyone knows about parts work at all, it also really speaks to the experience of um, working under the therapeutic modality of parts work, uh, which has to do with um, the way that memories get processed in the brain after traumatic experiences. That's kind of another conversation. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I think, though, two things. Firstly, um, it does seem to me that, um, and again, another theme that comes through the book is this notion of love and not just romantic love, although there is some of that in there, too, but how we can love what we've cast off of ourselves. So, you know, how do we get back to how does one get back to anybody get back to um, this notion of of being able to love all Mm -hmm. those rejected aspects of the self that we may have kind of, you know, swept aside or said, you know, this doesn't fit something um, that we've been taught it needs to fit. Um, But the second thing is uh, how powerful doing that for oneself is in a more general artistic and a more general sense. And that, for example, you know, when I've seen you read, there's kind of an electricity that goes through the room that kind of you see people kind of gravitate towards it and go, oh, my God, this is so freeing for me to hear this, you know, that, that, that there is a kind of much broader than reclaiming the self therapeutic power in that kind of, you know, I don't want to call it self love, because that comes with baggage. But you know, that kind of um, acceptance. Yeah, and I, to me, I really see it as like, practicing vulnerability which comes up vulnerability and intimacy to me are the two kind of words that sort of sum that up. And they're words that my therapist talks about a lot as well, coincidentally. Um, (laughs) But I think the book is really about that. And I mean, I, I think it's so beautiful that you've touched on what happens at live readings because that's something that I didn't really expect and have been really, really touched by the sort of reactions that people have had to me reading these poems, because I think that what's kind of happening there, I mean, and obviously I'm only speaking from my own perspective, but I feel like so often we just sometimes need to be given permission, you know, whether that's from someone else that allows us to give permission to ourselves or whether we're just straight up giving the permission to ourselves to engage with things, feel things, talk about things, especially stuff around, you know, in a lot of my poems and particularly a lot of my readings, I 
um, you know, I always am very explicit about the fact that things are about abuse, that I'm a survivor, that, you know, I live with PTSD, that this poem is about mental health. This poem is about how I hate myself. This poem is about self-harm. This poem is about suicidal ideation. And I think for people who, other people who experience those things, you know, especially like to take suicidal ideation and self-harm as an example, those are, you know, just more experiences that we're told that we're supposed to be ashamed of if we experience them and that we're not supposed to talk about them. So I think seeing, you know, it's a, a very powerful experience to be given, you know, permission in a room, in a public place, a room full of people by someone saying, hey, I self-harm. I'm up here, I'm going to read you a poem about it that I wrote, and I'm going to make a joke about it at the start of it to show you that I don't care how people respond to this, you know, like I'm in control of my own response to it. To me, that's one of the other things that humor can do. Like it allows you, it can help you take control of a situation that sometimes other people will try and control by their responses. And I think that happens a lot, especially with people who do uh, experience mental illness. Yeah. And I think, yeah. So, I mean, I think it is a really freeing experience to see that other people have one also had these experiences and to want to talk about them and three aren't ashamed of them and can be doing amazing things. You know, like it was very difficult for me when I was growing up. I obviously never had any role models that you know, that I knew were survivors. And I remember a very, like a touchstone moment for me was reading an interview with Fiona Apple when it talks about the fact that she's a survivor and sort of how that had been for her. And me finding out that like one of my favorite singers, and this is at a time when I was really focusing on music and songwriting, you know, was a survivor and, you know, was someone whom I, you know, looked up to so much like it didn't make it didn't make it more it didn't make her more important to me because she was a survivor but it made me feel better about myself and what I could achieve seeing that someone who I already really respected who had achieved so much you know hadn't been broken by this thing that I was told I'd been broken by yeah yep and uh, I'm trying to think of a line from hers that I could cite but I'm, I'm not going to pull it off, <laughs> but I think oh. that the notion of like still laughing as well, like, you know, I'm, I'm here and I can, I can laugh and Hey friend, laugh with me. You know, we're, we're yeah, going to be all right. Totally. We're going to be and okay. And we can laugh together. And I yeah. think that's a really important thing about community that live performance poetry can really foster as well. And especially when it's poetry about things that we're not supposed to talk about that, you know, then it said really explicitly that this is what it's about. Cause you know, I don't think it's like revolutionary that, you know, I'm writing poetry about trauma or mental illness or anything. I think a lot of people are doing that. Um, and I think that's amazing. And I think that, you know, we need as much of that as possible, but I think there is something to be said for explicitly stating what something is about. Cause I think so often poetry has been like a great place to talk about difficult topics because we can shroud everything, you know, kind of so heavily and not that there's abs- not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but I do think there is a power in explicitly naming things. Yeah, for sure. So on that topic, can I get you to read past tense? I would absolutely love to. And this is actually one of the a fun fact about this poem is that this is, one of the first poems that I wrote that I knew was 
explicitly about abuse. And this actually, yeah, follows along really well because this was probably the first time I really noticed a shift. This is, sorry, it's terribly ineloquent for a poet, but the story of this poem is at the time that I wrote this, this was the most explicitly that I had ever written about abuse. And that kind of marked a psychological shift for me from feeling like I had to hide what had happened in my poems to feeling like I didn't have to and could be more explicit. So here is past tense. The week it returned, I was learning how to inhale deeply when people passed instead of holding my breath. The words tolerate discomfort, avoidant coping mechanisms, a fluid translucence of feeling. Imagine you and me in a crowded party holding my hands. It looks like I'm crying. Later, an empty alleyway. Hands on my head, head between my knees. Funny story. The week it returned, I was learning how to drink on my meds. The first time it happened, I didn't know what it was. Didn't have the language to describe the look of a puppet, what a body part is. Times 8 to 11 sound like I have educated myself, made words into folded shapes in my brain, my chest, created portraits in the half shell, allowed others to season them, become confused. The week it returned, I was learning how to build a solid narrative. As panic builds, language begins to look like a cloud, a helium balloon, the most disappointing carnival in the world. That last stanza is so powerful. <laughs> Thank you. It's actually one of my favorite things I think I've written. Yeah, it really hits. Um, and, and it comes back to that notion that we began talking about, too, about, you know, how hard it is to touch on things using language. And yet that's our tool. So, you know, you just said before you started, you know, this is so ineloquent, ineloquent for a poet. <laughs> but I think, you know, and I, I get that sometimes, too. I guess I'm stammering to say something complex, you know. I get that, you know, that notion of um, you're a poet. Why are you struggling with words? But of course, that's what poets do. We don't we're not comfortable with just using sound bites. You know, it, it has to go a little bit deeper. And that's hard. That takes it takes kind of, um, you know, uh, a kind of um, let me stammer a bit here just to prove my point. <laughs> it, takes, yeah. it, it takes negotiation <laughs> with language. It's always a negotiation. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that as an, a negotiation. I mean, and I think also something that I think is really important about poetry is, you know, to get back to that idea of kind of like breakage. One of the things that I love so much about poetry is the way that it can break and reshape language and sort of like use destruction and breaking as a form of creation, you know? Uh and I love, like, I love that for so many reasons, but I think especially when we're trying to find ways to talk about things that we haven't been taught how to talk about, having a very elastic use and understanding of language, you know, can only sort of serve us in that because it means we need to essentially create our own language, you know, our own personal language to talk about 
things that we, ha- well, you know, we're never taught to talk about. As I think everyone creates their own sort of personal language anyway. But I think that, you know, like for me writing this book, this was essentially me creating a language for how to talk about all this pain that I had been experiencing. Yeah, I, uh, I heard, um, I read that uh, in the bands that you're in, um, Jagger X Line in particular, um, has been described as having one foot on the dance floor and the other on a therapist's couch. And I think that's a pretty yeah. good description for this book as well. <laughs> I think I think that's a pretty good description for my life, to be honest. <laughs> like, yeah, that if I mean, if I was to, you know, have a Tinder bio or maybe I should I should change this to my Twitter bio to one foot in the therapist's office, one foot on the dance floor. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it, wor- it works. It really works with that whole notion of the, you know, the, the motion and the, and the rhythm and the, the, the laughter and, you know, in the pain. Introversion, extroversion. Mm-hmm. I mean, and also if we're talking about balance in life, you know that's that's me like straight up hedonism and then you know cerebral like deep dive i need to fix my entire identity yeah, sure. <laughs> which is which is pretty funny and and yeah. also kind of wonderful well, I think that is sort of like a metaphor for my life i'd never thought about it that way <laughs> so um we're almost out of time but what's on the cards now what are you working on anything in the pipeline oh i'm working on so many things maggie it's very exciting I'll give you a quick list. Yes. Um, so I'm about to go on my Aotearoa book tour for Eager to Break, which is really exciting. So that's three different dates in Otiputi, Tamaki Makoto, and Poniki, so Dunedin, Auckland, and Wellington. And that's going from August 22nd to the 31st. But what's really cool about this is that I'm making these well, they're not traditional poetry readings and they're not meant to be traditional poetry readings. So there's going to be music. It's going to be kind of like half gig, half poetry reading, super engaging, super like lots of audience participation. And we really want to be drawing in a lot of people who maybe haven't felt comfortable to go to a poetry reading before, or, you know, maybe sort of still see poetry as this very kind of like serious and like shrouded in, you know, sort of like literary gravitas. So we kind of want to sort of break that down. We're eager to break that whole perception. Nice. And then, I, right? Yeah, branding. Eager to break. Um, maybe I'll throw. Maybe, maybe people will throw eggs at me too. I haven't decided yet. Um, and then I've just been awarded my first writer's residency. So next year, I'm going to be the writer in residence in Finland in a place called Sisma wow. for all of February, working on my second collection. That is so exciting. And, and I'm the readings sound very amazing excited. too. I've never been to Finland. Mm-hmm. I am, yeah, I've never had a writing residency before. Uh, and then actually today, this is still a little bit low key. We'll see where this goes. So this is kind of like a special mystery treat. Um, but I am currently, today I've started working on expanding Eager to Break. Um, well, no, translating the collection into a one-act play. Fantastic. That, yeah, I will so look forward to all busy, of those things. But life is good. Mm, sounds absolutely wonderful. That is all we have time for. But thank you so much for, for joining me. And um, I will put your website and all the social info. Um, you're wonderfully active visually as well. And, or you know, um, in terms of music too, on the show notes. So thanks. Amazing. Thanks, Bye for now. Thank you, Maggie. It was so lovely talking to you.